You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Today I want to start out with a, a story, a story about an ancient thriving city called Sardis, which stood on top of a high hill and not unlike the ancient city of Troy, was surrounded by incredibly tall and impregnable walls. I have some pictures of those for you to look at. In fact, some archaeologists say this was the most protected and secure city in all of Mesopotamia and Middle Asia at the time. In the 6th century BC, this city was ruled by Croesus, and he was also one of the wealthiest kings in the known region. In fact, it was a bustling city full of wealth and a vibrant economy and was actually the first location to mint gold and silver coins. So we have them to thank for that. And so with all its comforts and sense of security and therefore pride, it probably won't surprise you how this story goes. So one day in the year 546 BC, the Persian army arrived to besiege it. They wanted to take it over, but to no avail, right? They couldn't overcome those huge walls. And so eventually they just made camp around the city. But that's when a couple of Persian soldiers realized that there was only one sentry guard posted at the back wall. And so they took note of this. And as they were watching this guard, they saw that he fell asleep, like some of you while I'm preaching. I see your heads bobbing up and down, right? Uh, anyways, that's, that's what was happening to this guard. His head, his head was bobbing up and down as he sat on the wall at his post, and his head slowly tilted downward finally, and then his helmet fell off right over the wall, right over the side of the wall. And then the, the sentry eventually woke up and noticed that his helmet was missing, and it was, you know, on the ground on the outside of the wall, and so he left his post, and then a couple of minutes later, all of a sudden, he, he popped up, seemingly out of nowhere, further down the hill on the outside of the wall. And then he ran and he grabbed his helmet, and then he disappeared again, popping up a couple of minutes later back at his post on the other side of the wall. And so the Persian soldiers who were, who were watching this, they, they found this pretty intriguing. And so upon further investigation, they discovered that there was actually a secret stairway that led to a secret back door into the city. Yes, exactly like Lord of the Rings into Mordor. Pretty cool stuff. So later, later that evening, the Persian army made a plan and they snuck into the city through that secret way and actually found all of the residents of Sardis, including most of the guard, fast asleep. They were sleeping. Isn't that crazy? With such a powerful enemy at their gates, like, this is the Persian army. They're taking over, like, everything at the time. So with such a powerful enemy at their gates, the people of Sardis slept soundly in their beds, completely unaware and uninterested even in the possibility of their impending death. It seems like their, their comforts and sense of security had made them complacent. And complacent, 
as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines, is being marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. So that, that definition alone pretty much sums up the story of their defeat. Right? And, and yet, this is only the first time that this happened in Sardis. Yes, that's right. A few uh, centuries later, the same thing happened to the Persian army, who had become so complacent themselves that they didn't even have guards at the back gate. So now let's fast forward about 600 years later, and we find that this story and this culture of complacency is not only the history and backdrop of the city of Sardis, but that it's also the primary issue for the Christian church community there as well, which Jesus addresses through the Apostle John in one of the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So let's read that together now. So turn with me to Revelation 3, 1 to 6. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So very simply, but powerfully, this is a call for the church to wake up. God is a God God of revival and renewal, and he's calling the church in Sardis to turn back to Christ and experience this awakening. Though The problem, it seems, is that they didn't even know they were asleep. It says they had a reputation for being alive, but they were actually dead. Whether that means that they were riding on the the coattails of past successes or past revivals, or, or whether it means uh, they had become good at outwardly giving off the impression that they, that they were a vibrant and happening church community with their polished speakers and, and attractive worship leaders and well-written liturgies along with the fancy lights and smoke machines and, of course, their active social clubs that met throughout the week. What, whatever it was, they thought they were alive, at least, or at least they looked alive. But in reality, they'd entered into a zombie-like state of moral lethargy and spiritual drowsiness. I once read the story of a man who went for a walk one evening, and he discovered another man who was drunk and passed out, lying on top of some railroad tracks. 
So, so of course, this, this man very quickly pulled this, this sleeping guy off the rails before the train came through, saving his life. And, and the point being is that this man was in grave danger, but because he was asleep due to drunkenness, he'd had no idea he'd even needed saving. And this letter to the church in Sardis is Jesus' way of pulling them off the rails. It's a wake-up call for them. It's a defibrillator for their souls. Like his call to Lazarus who lay dead in a grave, Jesus is calling the church in Sardis to come out of there. And this is, this is a fitting reference because on an opposite hill from the Acropolis of Sardis and, and the great walls of Sardis, lay one of the largest cemetery sites in the known world. This was often called a ne- necropolis. Necro, of course, is a word which denotes death. So it's a necropolis, a cemetery. So that, that's such a contrast, right? We see the, the city itself was a vibrant, bumbling city of, of progress and commerce, but then right next to it, was the biggest memorial to the dead ever known. They had a reputation for being alive, but really, it was a place of the dead. A place of self-satisfaction that had led to complacency and lethargic attitude to the dangers around them. And this was also the spiritual state of the church. It's amazing how the, the culture of the city we're in can affect the church's culture as well so easily. Outwardly, they looked alive, but inwardly, according to this autopsy of Christ, they were dead. A.W. Tozer defines this, this type of death for us when he writes, death is a spiritual sleep or lethargy. It is possible for one to be morally awake and then slip back by degrees into a kind of spiritual somnolence that is coldness and lack of feeling about God and the things of God, about Christians and about the dying to self and the scriptures and prayer. You get used to things, and God is far away, and there is little communion and little joy in the Lord. To have a cold heart with little pity, little fire, little love, and little worship is spiritual lethargy. Again, this description describes not only the state of the church in Sardis, but it's an incredibly accurate description and deadly diagnosis of the state of the Western church today. We've gotten so used to our things, so comfortable and, and secure with our stuff and our political and religious freedoms, so sure of ourselves that we've fallen asleep in our faith and in our calling. Archaeologists that that have studied the city of Sardis actually discovered one of the biggest ancient Jewish synagogues within the city. And, And the crazy thing about it is that it was located right in the middle of the Roman gymnasium. And the gymnasium back then wasn't where you played basketball. It was a place where they would worship their gods. So this, this most likely means that there is a large Jewish pres- presence within the city, which is fine. But we can also assume, due to the prominent location of their synagogue, 
that, that there was more of a religious acceptance or, or freedom in Sardis and much less persecution in that city toward other types of religions that, than in other cities at the time. So most likely then, we can surmise that the Christians in Sardis were mostly free to just worship as they liked, which is great. But the danger and, and downside of religious freedom is that it makes it easy. Because it would take little sacrifice or effort to go to church. They didn't really need to rely on the Spirit of God to move in their community or strengthen them to persevere or do good works. They could just do it all on their own strength. But it seems like they were barely even doing that. And so my guess is that these societal freedoms, along with the ease and pleasures of their culture, had caused them to grow soft in their faith and in their relationship with God. Just like us. It's kind of like a a married couple who's just going through the motions, but not really investing in their relationship. Not realizing that they're slowly drifting apart. And this is what complacency does to our souls and our relationship with God as well. This, this is what was happening in Sardis, and it's also the state of the Western church, as I said before. And so, yeah, maybe we're going to church when we feel like it. Maybe we're volunteering sometimes. Maybe we're singing the songs. Maybe we give uh, food to the food bank at Christmas. But it's often like we're just going through the motions. And inwardly, we're, we're dried up, lethargic feeling empty, dead, only coasting and and drifting on the reputation of being alive. And I know some of you this morning, this isn't judgment, but I know some of you this morning have become complacent and are feeling this lethargy. And I know some of you this morning are feeling dried up in your spirit. And I know some of you this morning have grown so accustomed to your creature comforts and false sense of security and the worldly systems of our culture and its desire for progress, so you've placed Jesus on the back burner. And in contrast to that, I know some of you this morning are experiencing a deep hunger or holy discontent and are lamenting the the supposed absence of the Spirit of God's movement within the church and in your lives. But hear this. Jesus is calling us you, his church, back to life. He's calling us to prepare our hearts for a time of renewal, to become realigned with with the refreshing power and glory of God's presence and purpose. He's calling us like the church in Sardis to wake up from our slumber. Just as Paul, echoing the words of Isaiah, wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.14, He says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. A couple decades before this letter was written, the city of Sardis had experienced some earthquakes. One so powerful that it split the Acropolis into three chunks. The Roman emperor even exempted their taxes for a couple of years so that the city could rebuild. 
which means that when this letter was written, the citizens of Sardis were only living with the reputation of being invincible, with only the reputation of being a great city. But in reality, they had become a small glimpse of that city's former glory. And really, these, these earthquakes should have been a wake-up call for them in that regard, right? That their lives aren't as comfortable and they aren't as secure as they'd like to think. That, that all they relied on and trusted in could be gone in a flash. And I guess in a sense, this pandemic we're experiencing right now, along with such divisive politics that we're seeing and failing political and social policies, you know, all of these things that are happening right now has, has been a kind of a wake-up call for the church as well. At least it should be. Our false sense of security has been slightly shattered. Our daily habits and, and priorities, along with our adopted secular concepts of happiness and, and freedom gained through radical individualism and hyper-consumerism, have been disturbed and shaken. And like the people of Sardis... We thought we were impregnable and untouchable and way above such old-fashioned concepts like the plague. Yet here we are. And so in a sense, it's caused us to humble ourselves, right, in, in the sight of, of God and, and to rethink and to re-examine where we derive our purpose and our joy and our strength and our security from. As Mark Sayers writes, during transitions, God offers us the chance to go deeper with Him. The rawest form of transition is a crisis. It is the surest antidote to complacency. But yet, similar to the way we often hit the snooze button in the morning, the, the unfortunate truth is that we can just as easily ignore this convicting and, and challenging wake-up call and chance to go deeper with God during this crisis since things like Netflix and social media are still simultaneously and faithfully calling us into wasting our days in the comfort of ignorance and entertainment to become not unlike zombies sauntering down the road with no purpose or vision, barely living with only an unquenchable impulse to consume. And of course, they say ignorance is bliss, but ignorance founded on complacency and lethargy and the desire to avoid unpleasantness will only keep us completely unaware of, of the impending danger of our own sin and the temptations around us, and of course, unprepared for when that danger comes or for when the thief enters our home and finds us sleeping. As Jesus told the church in Sardis, Revelation 3, 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And this is something he'd warned his disciples of before in reference to his second coming when he comes to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus says to them from Mark 13, 33 to 37, he says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Awake. 
Jesus doesn't want to show up and find his church asleep. Jesus wants to find his church awake and faithfully living as lights for his name. And so this is why Jesus is lovingly but firmly calling his church to wake up. Like in the story of the prodigal son, he's calling the church to run back into the father's arms so they can hear God declare to them, my son has returned. He was once dead, but is now alive. And and this has been the desire of God for his people from the first moment mankind sinned and turned against him. His desire is to bring the dead to life, to bring them back into his presence. Listen to this account from the, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14. It says, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people... I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Again, I, I know that many of you are feeling like these dry bones. Like, like, like your spirit is dried up and your hope is gone. But God is a God who takes up our dry bones and breathes new breath into them, who fills us with his spirit and calls us up out of the grave and into new life. God is a God of renewal. And at the beginning of this letter, we're introduced and reminded of the source of this renewal of Jesus Christ, who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits in his hands. And and this glorious image, this glorious image is telling us that Jesus holds the power of renewal and revival for his church. 
that he alone holds the power of renewal and revival for the church. In one hand, it says he holds the seven stars, which Revelation chapter 1 tells us are the seven angels or messengers of the churches. Whether that's actual angels or pastors or prophets of these churches, I don't know. We don't know. But either way, they're those who have been called to prophesy and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the churches. And then in the other hand, it says he holds the seven spirits. The number seven, if you don't know, the number seven in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, is often used symbolically to mean completeness or fullness or perfection. And in this case, it's probably referring to the sevenfold Spirit of God, the complete Spirit of God, which is a direct reference from the book of Zechariah. So basically, we're being reminded right away, right at the beginning of the letter, that Jesus holds in his hands the two things we need that can bring us from spiritual lethargy and into renewal. Two things required to bring us from death to life, which is, again, hearing the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit. The gospel, which speaks of our salvation and righteousness and eternal life through Jesus Christ, that he defeated the power of sin and death for us through his own death at the cross and in his resurrection. He's the one who brings us out of our grave and into new life. And the Holy Spirit, which Jesus pours out on all who believe in him, not only as a seal of our salvation and eternal inheritance, but also to strengthen us in the presence of God and guide us in our calling to partner with Him in bringing His light and His glorious message of salvation to the world. Daniel Aiken writes, the love, of our Savior the love our Savior has for His church is utterly amazing. Not only has He redeemed her, He again and again goes out to rescue her from self-inflicted wounds. Even when others would walk away saying, let the patient die, she can't be saved. He reaches out in love and compassion to save her yet again. Our God is in the resurrection business. He's continually active in bringing dead sinners to life. And he is active in breathing life back into dead churches. When things appear their worst, our Savior is at his best. And so we might be feeling spiritually dead as the church, but Jesus is the one who can bring the dead to life. In fact, he tells them in this passage that those who conquer through him will be given white robes and will walk with him. It says in verse 5, Revelation 3, verse 5, it says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Isn't that awesome? So white robes are often used throughout the book of Revelation to symbolize purity, righteousness, and holiness. We see Jesus wearing a white robe when he comes again in that image. But this also speaks directly to, to the culture of the day as well. In fact, during that time in the city of Sardis, there was a traditional 40-day festival held every year dedicated to, to remembering the myth of the goddess Cabela. And, and on one particular evening during this festival, each citizen of the city would put on a white robe, and they would march toward the altar of her temple in order to make an animal sacrifice to her. Alternatively, for those who didn't have an animal, 
They could stand near others who were making a sacrifice, and as long as they got some of the animal's blood on their white robes, they'd be counted as worthy. In other words, as long as their robes were soiled, they would be counted as worthy. So Jesus is telling the church here that, that this practice, this idolatry, only leads to death, and that he's the only one who's able to make us worthy and dress us in a robe of white. He's the only one who can present us before the Father and write our names in the book of life because he's the only one who shed his blood for us at the cross once for all as our perfect sacrifice. And so he says to those who haven't soiled their robes in in the ways of the culture, in the blood of false idols, but rather who place their hope in him, that they're the ones who will know true life. And therefore he gives the church a recipe of sorts for how to wake up for how to prepare their hearts and to come back to him for renewal. And and this is the same pattern for renewal that we're invited to take part in today. First of all, he calls them to remember. To remember. To remember what they'd seen and heard. Right? This, This is coming back to the truth. In the Old Testament, when the Judeans were finally permitted to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem, they they discovered the book of the law right, God's law. And, and when it was read out to them, it caused them, them to remember God's commandments, and, and, and that therefore caused them to then weep in repentance and hunger for the presence of the Lord. And this is the call for us today to remember the good news of the gospel. Pastor Tim Keller once wrote that Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. And this is so true. And, and if the message of the gospel seems boring or, or repetitive or, or it's lost its luster, then this is a sign that you need to come back to the basics, to the foot of the cross, and remember when Christ rescued you. Even so, no matter how mature we are in the faith, this is something we need to do daily, to remember what Jesus did at the cross for our sins, to remember that he who knew no sin became sin for us at the cross so that we would no longer know sin ourselves, to remember that he was buried in the tomb and that in three days he conquered the grave so that we can join him in resurrection life, to remember his grace and his calling for us to spread the gospel and light into the world, to remember that Jesus is the one who saved us by grace alone, who covers us in righteousness so we can be filled with his spirit and in relationship with God, and that he's the one who writes our names in the book of life. We're called to remember. And then second of all, he calls us to keep it, to keep what we've seen and heard. The danger, as we've seen, is is to drift off into complacency or lethargy, but we're called to stay on guard to be watchful, to be awake, and even to strengthen what we've been given. As Isaiah the prophet proclaimed in in Isaiah 52.1, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. So the church in Sardis had, had grown content, right, in the mediocre, halfway comfortable and convenient Christianity. But in doing so, they actually lost what they had seen and heard, They'd soiled the garment of Christ that they'd been freely given. And this is why we're called to remain vigilant, alert, and to grow in what we've been given. This is a call to continual discipleship and maturity, to remain in Christ, to put on the white garment which he gives us freely, and to keep it on. 
And we can't do this on our own. This isn't about being better or doing something in our own strength, right? This is, we can't do this on our own, and this is why Jesus has poured out his Spirit upon all those who believe in his name. And this is what we need for revival, not only a fresh pouring out of his Spirit, but a humility to let him guide us and keep us in the way of Christ. So to choose renewal, then, is to choose to contend for God's presence, to move in us and to desire for Him to continually change us and mold us for His purpose. It's to keep what we've been given. Third of all, Jesus calls us to repent. Like every other church we've learned about so far in the book of Revelation, Jesus calls us to turn from our sin and from the world and back to Him. That's what repentance is. It's a turning away from our sin in the world, and back on to Jesus. And if we remember his gospel, and if we take a posture of contending for him to move in our lives, this should naturally lead us into a place of repentance and a hunger for God. And then finally then, we see an encouragement to the few in that church who have remained awake and faithful to Christ. And, and this is significant that there's a few there who are still remaining faithful. It's, it's significant because history has shown that renewal starts when a small group of believers remain, remain deeply devoted and faithful in contending for God to move within them and their community. Mark Sayers again writes, a constant dynamic in the history of the church is the way in which the larger church is renewed by a smaller remnant within the church. The remnant becomes a living and breathing alternate vision showcasing the spiritual health and vitality that comes when we contend and cry out for God to move. So for those within the church who have remained faithful and growing and, and, and contending in the Spirit for God to move in this church, but yet maybe are feeling frustrated or, or saddened by the state of the church as a whole or feeling alone in this journey with Christ, be encouraged by this word here. Be encouraged by it. Your Spirit-filled devotion is not only recognized and rewarded by Jesus, but is also pivotal to the revival of His church. So keep going to the prayer meetings, even if you feel like you're the only one. Keep worshiping and growing in the Word and loving others, even if you feel like nobody else is doing it or is into it. Keep proclaiming the gospel and contending for the Spirit of God to fall afresh in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if you're not seeing the fruit of it yet. Your faithfulness will be a light to others and an example of faith and of Christ for those who have become complacent or lethargic in their own faith. But again, for the rest of the church that has fallen asleep, again, this is a wake-up call. Romans 13, 11 says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The time to wake up is now. Not later, not tomorrow, not in a week, not a year from now, but now. For we, for we don't know the day or the hour when, when Jesus is coming again. The time is now to trust in Jesus and believe in his name by faith. 
to remember, to return. And as Jesus proclaims in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't ignore this alarm. Don't hit the snooze button. If you're feeling dried out, if you're feeling empty, if you're feeling purposeless, if you're feeling frustrated in the Spirit, if you're not feeling the Spirit move in your life like dry bones in a desert, heed this call of renewal from Jesus to come to Him and be filled with the breath of God. Fall at His feet and let His Spirit renew your soul and bring you back to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your promise to bring these dry bones back to life. I thank you for your promise that you would breathe on these bones, that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we would have new life, resurrection life. And I thank you that you fulfilled that promise by sending Jesus Christ, your only one and begotten Son. To take our sin and our death for us upon the cross. And that he conquered our death in his resurrection, that we may join him in new life. Lord, the truth is that, that so many of us have forgotten how amazing that is. We've taken it for granted. We've become complacent. We've become lethargic. Our muscles have gone into, our spiritual muscles have gone into rigor mortis. We can't revive ourselves, Lord, but you can revive us. And I pray that you would revive us this morning. You, that you would revive our hearts, that you would revive our soul, that you would revive the, the passion for your name. Lord, that your spirit would fall afresh on each and every one of us this morning as we remember, as we come to you with repentance, as we surrender at the foot of the cross. Jesus, revive us. Let us not ignore this call to wake up. Jesus, wake us up that your light may shine on us. And we pray this in your holy and blessed name. Jesus.